0: Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and um, looking forward to this week's episode. We've got a clinical topic for you. and going to talk a little bit about... Um, being aware of uh, resources when donating things to places, and also um, a little bit about uh, blast injuries and some other things uh, as general topics. Um, But we'll get around to that here in a second. We have to first bring in our esteemed co-host, Sam Bradley. Sam, you've been just hopping busy with all the things you're doing with IDMC.
1: Oh, my God. It's crazy. It's like, you know, I have this headset on 24-7 because there's always a – you know, a meeting scheduled for something or other. There's at least three or four a week. But interestingly, we talked to uh, one of our major partners, uh, Global Response Management, who are actually boots on the ground over there. And, uh, you know, they've been calling us for hazmat specialists and stuff that can actually go there and teach these people how to don and doff and do that kind of thing. And
0: by over there, you mean Ukraine. Ukraine? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that was interesting was they were talking about all the surgery that they're doing um, and the fact that they've had to lean into the fact that, and I know this from personal experience, the Ukrainians are kind of a couple decades behind what we're used to in terms of equipment and so forth and so on and, and how they, you know, the doctor-nurse relationship and, and things like that. So, you know, along with the surgical intervention and trying to teach them new equipment and new techniques, like somebody said, um, what was it, there was a piece of equipment they sent over there that was disposable, but they weren't used to it, so they weren't using them. So they had to actually show them how to use them before they were comfortable with it. So, you know, those kind of things really have to be taken into consideration when you're dealing with another culture. So there's, I'm I'm involved in education right now because there's so much of it that needs to happen. But, you know what I remember too about the Ukrainian medical people is, you know, they're very good at what they do, even if they don't have a lot to work with. So, it's crazy. And yeah, um, they, I, I was glad to hear that they're able to have that much surgical intervention because God knows they need it. And that will that will kind of lead into our discussion tonight. But, um. I wanted to mention something about the weather. Our meteorologists are off doing what meteorologists do. But I guess there's a nasty storm coming through starting Friday night, which will bring all the requisite hail and flooding and tornadoes and whatever, like uh, from the northern plains into almost into the Midwest, and then it 'll uh, that one will kind of go away, and there 's another one that will drop further south, so it looks like there 's probably a pretty good week of nasty weather going that way. It looks like the rain may go out your way, Jamie, so that should be interesting
0: um, we'll, we'll keep it we 'll keep an eye out for it, and um, you know without our meteorologists here we 'll just have to remind folks. Make sure you've got your weather radios or your um your apps on your phones set for alerts so that you can be notified when severe weather comes into your region.
1: Yes, especially when we're dealing with floods and stuff cuz that can happen so quickly. And uh, we'll get, hopefully get an update from them next week on what happened. But uh, and, and- one of our one of my people is actually going to do some storm chasing. So I've coerced him onto the show after that because I really want to know what they do.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And how crazy that is. So that ought to be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. I, I have a question for Joe since um we haven't introduced him as being on the show yet, but uh Dr. Joe Holly's here and we were talking you know, briefly at the beginning of the show about um resources in other areas internationally and, and things like that that are not readily available that we might be used to here in the United States. And I'm curious, Joe, how often you have to adapt when you're doing training or, or presentations internationally. Um, the, what, what kind of preparation you make when you go into a region, um, not knowing what to expect from, a uh, uh, equipment standpoint.
2: Well, well, hi everybody. Uh, glad to be on tonight. Um, and, it, there, there's a lot of that, a lot more of that 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 happens than I think a lot of people a lot of people realize. Um, you know, it, my my goal usually is to reach out to um, my contacts in the EMS world, or at least in the disaster response world, uh, who have experience or live there or have been there before, and try to get some of that information uh, so that we can ensure that what we're talking about makes sense to the people that are there. Um, And I think, you know, the other thing that always comes to my mind regarding these kinds of issues is um, well-meaning donors often donate all kinds of stuff with no, uh, research into whether or not it's actually even something that makes sense uh, for the um, the recipient to be able to use. Uh, you know, I mean, we saw this at Katrina where people showed up with you know medications and all kinds of stuff. Not that that's quite the same same scenario, but it really goes to the um, the sort of ill placed. Goodwill that it, it, it is not utilized to its maximum uh, simply because folks have not gone, not done their homework, not associated themselves with an entity that may can uh, answer questions or direct their efforts in, in a way that makes sense, and and I think we also have to think about the the impact on the logistics chain into areas that are challenged by logistics. So if you're hauling a bunch of uh, truckloads of equipment into uh, an area uh, where resources are scarce and it is equipment that can't be used uh, or people do not have the training to utilize it and you haven't included all of that in your Donation or your plan, then you've wasted a lot of people's time. You've certainly wasted uh, fuel and trucks and transportation time and space and everything else for for no gain in the end. If anything, it's been it's been a negative because you have consumed resources that are vitally needed for something else. Uh, and so it, it's just back to the the key here of making certain that. You, you, we do our best to match up the need uh, with the the supply and to ensure that we're both speaking uh, the, the same language uh, as it were, uh, meaning that the equipment that's being asked for is actually the equipment that can be used and uh, folks not making assumptions about... Um, what they think they need to donate when in reality we need to be finding out from the people that are receiving the donations what they need and we need it in enough detail to be able to ensure that we're not um, uh, due to our own you know biases and living conditions and situations and a million other things that come into play there uh, sending them stuff that they they they're not able to use because they simply don't know how they haven't had the training they don't have, X, Y, Z part, they don't have electricity to make it work, Uh, things like that. So those are really important things for people to think about as you um, reach out to help those that are in need, whether it's uh, a natural disaster or a man-made situation, uh, for example, in Europe.
1: Exactly. I, I guess there is a small advantage you know, with them being overseas because the only things that we're looking for and sending are the things that are specifically required or requested by our partner agencies that are over there. So, you know, if they say we need IO needles, then we will get them IO needles. Strangely enough, we just got, we just got, (laughs) you have to be careful in how you order things because we asked for IO needles and got a bunch of needles, but no guns. So that wasn't real helpful. So you got to be very specific <laughs> on what well, you want.
2: I, I think that's that's the classic example, Sam. You know, I, I mean, I I remember times where uh, people were desperately requesting fluids, and so you know what they got was uh, multiple pallets full of Gatorade, and it's like, n- no, we we meant IV fluids. And I'm like, well, that's There's not what,
1: difference. He, that's what he said.
2: <laughs> you know, so. The, the words become very important and the specifics become very important. And, and, and it's, it's just natural to assume that we're both speaking the same language, whether it truly is a different language or it's just simply our assumptions about what fluid means. Um, and so it, it, it behooves each side to really ask a lot of questions and, question almost every word to ensure that it's being interpreted the same way on both sides of the fence
1: and especially when you're dealing with people that are multilingual and you know then you've got that so you're absolutely right joe and that's why we're working really hard and if it is something like that that we can send them but they're not used to it then we try to provide the education for them as well so these things we're sending can be useful but that's for the boots on the ground people over there that are working with the medical team. So uh, it's a large project. Anyway, but of course, you know, watching TV and seeing all the bombing and so forth and so on. And of course, we have that domestically as well, unfortunately. Uh, we thought it was a good time. Jamie brought it up about talking about blast injuries. And I was looking at the uh, DOD site, and they actually have five different levels of injury. that I, I remember three, but now there's five. So, you know, that might be worth going over. So I guess a lot of the, what people don't realize, it's not the trauma itself, but it may well be, it's the pressure on the body that creates the injury. And Jamie, you mentioned earlier that they're finding people that are deceased, but not seeing any visible trauma. So maybe they're victims of a blast injury that have internal implications. But you don't see that. So that's not something I thought about, but I thought it was a good point. So, Joe, tell us a little bit about primary blast injuries. Uh,
2: well, you're right, Sam. There are lots of different layers to blast injuries. Uh, the primary blast injury is the, the blast pressurization piece, the over-pressurization and the under-pressurization Uh, that occur related to a blast. And that's actually the only one of these injury categories that is specific to uh, blasts alone. And we'll talk about these others in just a minute. But, uh, you know, the the issue there is the explosion of the uh, device or, you know, whatever uh, sends out uh, a a massive pressure wave um, that, impacts our bodies um, and results oftentimes in a lot of injury that is not externally visible. So the, the, the areas of the human body that are at risk are the areas that are air filled because air is compressible. And so uh, uh, lung, uh, bowel, uh, that kind of stuff tend to be the areas of that are most affected simply because you suddenly compress all the air in the chest, and then just as suddenly you release all that pressure, and that that results in stretching and tearing and um, uh, sheer forces on uh, vasculature and all the alveoli in the lung and Uh, The GI tract where the air gets, you know, again, squeezed and then suddenly released very quickly uh, that results in in tearing and perforation and all that sort of stuff. We see these same things happen in the ear canal with the tympanic membrane, the eardrum. Um, We could see it uh, affecting uh, the head in general with the sinuses. Um, also, obviously that, that pressurization can result in a rapid depressurization or re-expansion of those gases. And that can literally, uh, particularly in the upper aspects of the sinuses, um, for, direct that, uh, that pressure, uh, force into the, the intracranial cavity and result in brain injury and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it, it, it's not uncommon to see, um, folks who are um, killed quickly related to massive overpressurization, but also the, the, the effects of these may well take hours to, to demonstrate themselves. So if you've disrupted some vasculature in the lung and it's not so severe as to result in your immediate death, then it may be a few hours as capillaries leak and bleeding occurs and the lung begins to fill up and all those things begin to happen. And then, you know, six hours later, if you're not someplace that can provide medical care for you or you're not found or whatever, uh, ultimately result in your death.
1: Wow, and that's just uh, the primary blast injury. So, Joe, do these eye and and ear injuries eventually improve, or is it something permanent?
2: Uh, Well, in general, if it's uh, you know the the eye injury tends to have a lot more long term effect, just because if you if the globe of your eye, your eyeball ruptures, then that's, that's a major issue and tends not to heal very well, and, you know, that's, that's got its own set of problems. The tympanic membrane or the eardrum rupture uh, tends to heal uh, usually, uh, in most cases, over time, uh, but obviously can be quite debilitating, you know, if you've disrupted your middle ear, uh, not only can you not hear, but it may well affect your balance, uh, pro- producing vertigo and all the uh, associated symptoms that go along with that. So you know you're you're not able to uh, get up and walk away. <laughs>
1: uh, <and, laughs> One of the
2: things that that I, I think is really important for people to think about, particularly as we look at Um, rapid triage in, uh, for example, uh, improvised explosive device, a terrorist attack or whatever, you know, part of our approach usually is uh, as you enter those scenes, it's to shout out, you know, if you can hear my voice, come over here to me and let me get you out of here. That sort of pulls away your greens, you know, you're, you're minorly injured. But if there's been a significant overpressurization component to that, those folks may well not be able to hear you because their eardrums have been ruptured. Uh, and so they may not respond as you would like for them to respond. And, and it's important to remember that in those circumstances, um, it's it's not that they may not want to follow your commands. It's simply that they can't hear you. Uh, so we need to make certain that we're, we're still uh, – Getting in front of those patients, as it were, uh, so that we're able to see them as much as we can and perhaps use hand signals or, you know, write something on, the, on a piece of paper or whatever we have to do there to try to communicate with those folks because they, they may truly have significant auditory loss.
1: Wow. Yeah, that, that's a good point when you're doing triage. Questions on this, Jamie?
0: No, it's just it, you know it's fascinating to go over this again. I mean, it's something that I've covered a long time ago, and it's it's I think something that's always good to review. Um, and that's a great point, Joe, about you know making sure as you're triaging people that um, you, you're aware of these types of you know injuries from the primary um, source of injury. Um, like like the loss of hearing that could occur, they could be you know classified as green, but they can't understand you, so they can't follow your instructions. That that adds a level of difficulty and an extra step in your process um, that keeps you from continuing your triage. So that that's a you know an added an added level of difficulty.
2: Well, you're exactly right, Jamie, and you may also qualify. Uh, sorry, classify those people as. Uh, you know, severe neurological injury because they don't respond to you appropriately when in reality their brains are working fairly well under the circumstances, they just simply can't hear you to respond appropriately.
1: Yeah, I would think they'd at least be a yellow because there is an injury there. You know, we, we think of our greens as people that'll walk away with a little first aid and be fine, but that, that's not the case here. Right, right, Joe?
2: Well, absolutely, I mean, if you've had enough of an overpressurization injury to result in, in temp- Or pulmonary injury and GI injury and uh, you know all the other stuff that we were just talking about, A- and I-, I wasn't I wasn't uh, attempting to say that those folks would be labeled green. But they may not know that you are in the area, hollering out, so that they know they need to make noise uh, to attract your attention, to tell you that they're hiding behind whatever they're hiding behind, uh, because they simply can't—they can't hear, so they don't—they don't—they they lose that aspect of their environment to be able to to know that I, I hear a rescuer calling out. I want to make a noise so that he knows I'm here.
1: Which is uh, important for you, sir. Obviously, when they're absolutely. looking for people,
2: absolutely. We we definitely count on stuff like that to help us locate people.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. So, when we're looking at secondary injuries, now we're actually looking at uh, propelled fragments and debris and penetrating injuries and stuff like that.
2: Um, yeah, true. The, the you know the the other types of injuries that we often see in blasts are not really just specific to explosive type injuries, right? Uh, you know, and, and the secondary type of, of injuries are all the, uh, the shrapnel injuries of uh, objects being, you know, blown into your body. So a hand grenade goes off and, you know, you get shrapnel from that uh, or, you know, just flying debris in general. And then there's a there's a tertiary or a third layer, and that's actually the the force of the blast blowing your body into something and resulting in injury, uh, so that you literally become the uh, the fragment, <laughs> the, the shrapnel, uh, and you're you're impacting uh, the wall behind you with great force, and that results in you know broken bones and head injuries and. You know, all the stuff you would anticipate would happen if you had your body hurled at a solid object at some speed.
1: Yeah, so I imagine we're looking at crush injury and, and brain injury and any kind of blunt trauma, um, even traumatic applica- amputations. Which, of course, if you're dealing with an explosion, it wouldn't be unlikely that somebody would be stuck under something that they couldn't get out of. I know that you dealt with that situation, I believe, in Haiti, right, Joe?
2: Yeah, that, that's certainly correct, you know, that, that not only might they have been um, propelled into a solid object, but the, the, now the object, you know, the wall, uh, the ceiling, whatever, collapses and lands on top of them, resulting in additional injuries, crush, and all the other stuff that we've talked about many times before.
1: So then we get a our doc like Dr. Joe and say, get your saw. Um, the only way we're going to get this person out of here is to relieve them of their extremity, which is pretty scary stuff, I imagine.
2: Uh, certainly can be. Thankfully, those are uh, few and far between. But,
1: you know, if it's a matter of saving a life, then that's what you have to do, because you're not going to be able to remove the building off the extremity, so... You have to do what you have to do, and you know I put that in my book, (laughs) because you helped me with it. So then we actually have quaternary blast injuries, and that's when we're dealing with the explosive products themselves. So now we're looking at heat and light and uh, whatever fuels or metals or gases that are involved. So I assume we're talking about burns and blindness, even inhalation injuries.
2: Yeah, generally this is going to be burns. You know, mo- most explosives produce uh, substantial heat and uh, have have some sort of flame front associated with them uh, and may well uh, result in igniting other things in the environment around them. So, you know, a lot of times these can be, uh, uh, you know, burns from the, uh, the the fuel of the device or the bomb itself. Um or burns from the environment.
1: And lastly, quinary blast injuries, and that's post detonation, uh, environmental contaminations and so forth and so on. And I also want you to talk a bit about um, secondary explosive devices, which if this is an act of terrorism, might be set up to affect the first responders coming in, correct?
2: Uh, absolutely. So yeah, this this fifth layer is really kind of everything else, right? So it may that's sort of where the dirty bomb falls into uh, that that category, right? Where there's uh, uh, you know, there's all these other effects, but oh yeah, on top of that, there's uh, you've now been exposed to radioactivity, um, or um, you know, uh, a vial of some sort of a WMD biohazard something or another, you know? So it, it's just, it's ways to increase lethality, certainly from a, a, a terrorist approach. It, it's, they're, they're designed to be terror inducing. And obviously knowing that you not only got blown up, but uh, you got uh, inundated with shrapnel containing smallpox uh, you know, is pretty frightening, and oh, they were radioactive smallpox. So, you know, it, it just gets a little crazy at that point, for sure. But, you know that that's that's sort of everything else in the uh, uh, in the toolbox for uh, additional contamination uh, that's not directly related to the explosion itself, but is sort of left over from um, the explosion.
0: Jamie uh two two comments about that because uh, you mentioned the secondary explosions um that's something that is is um i have uh, seen several reports on talking to first responders in the, in Ukraine and um they talk about uh being wary of shelling that has struck areas and when they get called in to deal with patients there because they they they're calling it a double tap and they say that um they are shelling the same areas 10 minutes later or so trying ostensibly trying to catch first responders and rescuers out in the open uh trying to deal with the the initial effects of the first round of shelling um so that's something that that, that's really actually being dealt with right now um in in that war zone um The other side of it, um, the other comment I had, I was like, now I can't remember what I was going to say, but I, I think it had to do with, um, Joe, what you were talking about is how crazy it is that, um, you know, when you start talking about, you know, radioactive smallpox or whatever, um, and yet we've been having that discussion for the last two years about, you know, dealing with disasters during a pandemic with, you know, this and this and this added on top of it, um. And here we are, you know, with a war zone going on, on top of a pandemic, on top of, you know, other things that might be happening from a weather standpoint or whatnot. Um, it's it's just a lot, you know, and, and so hard to prepare for these things.
2: Well, no question about it. You know, I, I remember uh, back in the day. Wow. You know, you're old when you say back in the day. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we used to talk about scenarios that. Uh, had a dirty bomb and, uh, you know, oh, there's a infectious agent involved and all that sort of stuff. And people would sort of roll their eyes of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then fast forward to now uh, where you're right. I mean, we just finished uh, a few months ago doing a, uh, a building collapse that uh, was full of contaminants in the middle of a pandemic with a hurricane approaching. Uh, and so it, it, it's sort of... It it sounds absurd, it sounds completely fictional, yet if you look at the history of, you know, this response work, there it is, uh, in reality.
1: Well, that's the weird thing. I mean, if we look back five years to that kind of scenario, we would all roll our eyes and say, well, that's never gonna happen, but look what has been happening, mother-wise and so forth. You know, in just the last five years, They're just the craziest thing. I mean, mind-bending, you know, 500-year storms that are happening every couple months. I mean, just crazy stuff weather-wise. So if that alone tells us anything, uh, be prepared. But, you know, just to put a point to what you're saying to first responders, because, you know, there's always the urge to run in where other people don't want to go. But if there's an explosion, yes, it could be somebody's stove blew up or whatever else. But if there's any hint whatsoever that this might be an act of terrorism, don't run in there because of what we're talking about. There could be a secondary device waiting for you or, you know, unstable structure. And I we know we want to get into there to, to get to these people. But, it, you know, it's not it shouldn't be at the risk of your own life. So I just really wanted to make a point to that because it's just second nature to do
0: that. And, right, and a Jamie? lot of it, a lot of it is coming in with, with a, sec, uh, a set of situational awareness, an increased level of situational awareness. Um, when you do have a situation where that might be the, the case is just being that much more conscious of your surroundings and what, what is unusual or could be unusual from what you would ordinarily see in that situation. Um, and, and so just, I think that can go a long way to helping protect you and your colleagues. Um, when you do have a suspicion of something additional that might be occurring or, or something else that could happen after your arrival, um, uh, whether it's uh dispersal of something, from the original explosion or a secondary device waiting for your arrival. So um, all those things are things to be have heightened awareness about. And and I think that just knowledge is power in this situation.
1: Well, and situational awareness should go along with common sense. You know, those of us that have been doing this for 105 years kind of have a good spidey sense that says, ah, uh, maybe that's not a real good idea. So, the younger ones, not so much. So we got to watch out for them. But just real quickly, uh, as we wrap up here, Joe, is there anything new in the uh, COVID arena? Uh,
2: no, I don't know that there is. We continue to see, you know, rising infection rates of this latest BA two variant. Uh, there have been. Tremendous numbers in England in particular with a pretty big impact on their healthcare system at many levels. Uh, not so much here in the U.S. Uh, and, and although the numbers are going up, seem to be going up slowly, we're not seeing the huge impact on, um, you know, admissions to hospitals, ER visits, uh, ICU admissions and deaths that we had seen in the past. That, that's very good. Um, but there's a couple of things to, to be wary of. Still, I, I think a, many, many people are very tired of dealing with COVID. And, you know, while the numbers may be going up slowly, I think there's a, uh, a very large unknown pool of folks who may be infected, minimally symptomatic, uh, are just tired of worrying about it, and therefore have let their guard down a bit, uh, and and a, a group of those um, infections are not being reported to official channels. Testing is lessened, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, everybody's a bit more relaxed about it now. Uh, the hope is that what we're seeing is you know this this pandemic beginning to settle down into a uh, a more stable background infection that we have the resources to deal with as we need to. Um, but we don't know and there certainly could be another variant that comes along in a couple of months that uh, you know does some really bad stuff. so we don't know, but we're hopeful that uh, we're we're maybe nearing the end of the, the significant roller coaster ride on this one.
1: Oh that would be nice, especially with everything else going on in the world. Well, Jamie, we always learn something from Joe. He's such a wealth of information. I don't know what we would do without him.
0: I completely agree. And um Joe, you know, it's it's I think it's important that we are able to touch on these clinical topics and, and kind of bring it back around to um remind people that, you know, that, that refresher education that we all go through from time to time as part of our recertification process or or what have you. Um, it is important as we see these events occurring around the world. Uh, there's no reason to think that that something couldn't put ourselves in a situation where we deal with that, even in from a blast injury. Um, related to uh, a gas main in a home exploding or something like that. Um, Those things, you know, just because it's not a war-related blast doesn't mean that we don't have similar injuries to to be aware of and and to treat. So thank you very much for um, helping us with this. Um, This is a great example of the type of things that you can customize for people as well through Paragon Medical Education Group and um, where can people reach out to you if they want to, you know, have some specialized or particular type of um, of refresher education come into their system?
2: Well, we're always happy to talk with folks so that we can customize their educational uh, 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 experience to, to meet their needs. They can find us at Paragon Medical Education Group. Uh, on the web and on Facebook. And uh, they can always always reach us through the Disaster Podcast.
0: Thank you. And Sam, where can folks find you? Well...
1: Probably on the phone on a conference call, but that's not what we're talking about. On social media under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, certainly in our Facebook group and on the Disaster Podcast website. Uh, We're having our website for IDMC completely revisited and revamped. So when that gets up, uh, we'll put that up too if people want to see what we're doing. So how about you, Jamie? Jamie?
0: People can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations, so I hope they'll look me up and uh, follow what I'm doing there. Um, Of course, DisasterPodcast.com, I urge you to head over there. There are links below every episode player at the top of each episode page where you can subscribe to the show. So uh, whether you have an iOS or an Android device, uh, you can subscribe using your favorite podcaster app, and uh, that's a great way to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. We've got a lot of good stuff on the the hook, including some um, firsthand reports from people that are dealing with uh, some of the refugees from the Ukraine situation, and uh, we've got that coming up in a future recording recording, um, and we've also got um, some some great folks coming in to um, talk about storm chasing, as Sam mentioned earlier. So you'll want to definitely make sure you catch our next upcoming episodes. And uh, Sam, uh, as always, thanks for uh, helping get things rolling and get the questions going for each of our topics every week.
1: Well, it's nice we can always depend on Dr. Joe for our clinical episodes because we really appreciate those, especially those of us that aren't boots on the ground anymore but you know the two things that we picked out of this is you know we may be fortunate enough not to deal with this kind of thing but it just calls for two things situational awareness and common sense so stay safe